Welcome back, everyone. And I am joined by Dr. Jeff Ross himself. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, for those of you who are not aware of Dr. Jeff Ross's background, I'm, I'm going to just keep calling you Dr. Ross at this point. Um, <laughs> or just call is, me Jeff if it's easier. <laughs> I'm happy to, but this is a man who is a, a legitimate doctor. Uh, I will let you speak to sort of your background and experience who stumbled and came across Bitcoin. And this is, this is a story that we hear so many times, someone working in a sector, someone working in a space, discovering Bitcoin and realizing, hey, this is, this is really something that could help myself, my family, could help potentially my industry. We'll be diving into a lot of that. But Jeff, please share with, with our audience a little bit about sort of how you came to discover Bitcoin while being a doctor at the same time. Sure, sure. Well, it, it actually probably came about more not from being a doctor, but because I was also a fund manager. So, so I've been a physician since 2009. I actually just retired in at the end of September 2021 uh, from my medical work. So no longer being a uh, doctor anymore. So you don't have to call me a doctor. You can call me Jeff if you want. Um, um, uh, it's, it's more of my stage name than anything. Um, so uh, as a fund manager, though, so I founded Valeshire in 2013, and then I've been running a hedge fund since 2014 and a registered investment advisory as well since uh, 2014. I got attracted to the space initially. Uh, and when I say the space, I mean the crypto space. So I was just one of those guys. I was a degenerate trader back then. Um, I got sucked into crypto because of the risk adjusted returns. They just far surpassed obviously what you could get in equities and bonds, commodities, things like that. Um, so I was drawn to it and uh, 2016 started dabbling in it. 2017, I was really into it. Uh, obviously it's hard not to be when everything's just going to the moon, right? Had no idea what Bitcoin, I knew what Bitcoin was, but I didn't know why it was special. And um, I was one of those people. So this is before Bitcoin Twitter existed, or at least I knew any type of community like that existed. So I was just kind of watching from the outside as the fork wars were going on. I didn't know what that meant, really. I, I thought, well, I don't know, maybe Bitcoin Cash, there's something to it, maybe Litecoin, I don't know. And so I was one of those just, you know, um, goofy people that had kind of a basket of currencies, and I was going to see what, uh, what would happen. By the end of 2017, um, and this is a great lesson that, that I learned. So by the end of 2017, I got so sucked into those gains. I had sold all of my Bitcoin and I used to have quite a bit of Bitcoin. Um, class of 2016 was a wealthy doctor. So I was able to buy a lot, had converted all of that into all this other crypto stuff. As we remember in December, 2017, it all peaked. And then, you know, early 2018 crashed, right? And so what I got left with by about April of 2018 was no Bitcoin, a handful of uh, altcoins that had gone down about 90% or so, and a huge tax bill because of my gains from 2017. So I was like, okay, well, that's a really important lesson to learn. This wasn't in my fund, by the way. This is just me personally doing all this stuff. So fast forward to 2019, uh, along speaking of, I was just on that Preston Fish interview. We were talking about that earlier. Preston is the one I used to listen to him a lot because I started my fund as basically a stock picking value investor in kind of the healthcare and technology sectors. Um, and so he went uh, and discovered Bitcoin as well about the same time I did. And then he uh, brought up Safedine's book back in the day, you know, the Bitcoin standard where that came out. And so 
2019, early 2019, that's when I read that. And that's when I finally went down the rabbit hole. That's when I finally started to understand, oh, wait, Bitcoin's actually really different. There, there's something special about this. Like it literally is the world's best money. It's decentralized, secure. It has world changing properties. It's going to make the world a better place. I need to spend the time and figure what this thing out. And then as I figured it out, I started teaching my clients about it. Um, so fast forward, we went from no Bitcoin allocation in Veilshire accounts to, you know, 1%. We got off zero to 1%. And then we went to 5%. And then I could show my clients, like, here's my clients over here on this hand who have no Bitcoin and don't trust it and are scared of it because of all the headlines they see. Here's the clients who have the exact same portfolios, but with Bitcoin in them. And look at the difference over a one year, two year, three year kind of time period, what Bitcoin does. Um, and then, you know, they all kind of fall in line at that place and everybody got kind of excited about it. So number go up technology is very um, enticing to people. It actually works. Yeah, I guess the rest is history. So that's kind of my sorted history about how I got into it. So I say I'm the class of 2016, but because I'm stupid, I got held back to 2019. That's that's my, my that's my true class. So, anyways, I, I'm I'm making up for lost time in the meantime. That is that is a hilarious way to put it. Um, <laughs> I don't hold it against you for getting held back. I mean, thank you. I'm I'm the guy who heard about it in 2013 to buy to maybe use to do some things that I shouldn't have been doing and like didn't end up buying any. So I knew about it long, long, long time ago. Way before me, yeah. So uh, I'm with you on that notion, but I want to maybe talk a little bit about the psychology of investing because I'm very vocal about, I was pushed into Bitcoin at 2017, like literally on the, I think the day I was convinced was at 16K and I watched oh, wow. it rip to 19. And I'm sitting there like, no, not yet. No, not yet. And I always talk about how if I had bought at that moment, and then literally watched an 80, 90% decline down to about 3000, I would have never looked at it again. Mm -hmm. I would have walked away. So talk, talk a little bit about that mentality of being able to stick it out and learn more. Yeah. Well, I think because I'm sort of a value investor by training, I, um, I'm used to these. Well, first of all, I'm used to the cyclicality of markets. A lot of what I do is I look at the markets from a top-down macro view and everything goes in cycles. I really believe that. Like there's business cycles. There are times where it's uh, GDP is accelerating. There's times where it's decelerating. There's times where inflation is accelerating. There's times where it's decelerating. And it's just this constant flow of things. Stock prices, even if they kind of go up and to the left over, or excuse me, up and to the right, probably looks up, up and to the left on the screen on YouTube, up, uh, even though it does that, uh, it's doing it's doing it cyclically. So along the way, because of these business cycles, and so when I saw what happened in Bitcoin in 2018, you know, when it declined basically 85 percent from its peak. It's really, it wasn't that different than other things I had seen, right? Amazon had, uh, I think, a couple 90% drops in its early days. You know, Netflix had huge drops. So equities that are basically... Um, growth-based uh, that are based on a growing network, those things, they tend to have almost exponential growth over the long run. But in the short term, again, based on business cycles, they have huge, massive fluctuations. And those huge, like as you mentioned, those huge drops really, I mean, they're soul crushing, right? They, they, you're like, what is this? I did not sign up for this. Yes, I thought I was in it for the long haul, but I didn't plan on watching my balance go from whatever, 10000 down to $1,500. That's no fun. And so I realizing that Bitcoin is probably the same sort of thing. Like, and I'll backtrack one more thing. I used to be into the stock to flow model and I'm not uh, totally opposed to play. I think that's a great contribution to the space. 
I think though the, the growth of Bitcoin and the price of Bitcoin is more related to network adoption. So as the Bitcoin network grows and more and more people start to you know, own some, use it and go not only get off zero, but go from 1% to 5% to 10 to 20 to 50 to 100%. And, and we probably all know people who are 110% of their net worth is in Bitcoin. I could name a couple right now, but I won't, which I think is a little crazy. Anyways, when that we're talking about Metcalf's law at that point, right? So the value of a network is based on the number of users squared. And that's how you kind of figure out what the price is going to do over the long run. So again, what I see with Bitcoin, and this is a fantastic asset that's literally kind of a once in a generation or once in a species type event to have a new form of money that's literally going to transform the world. I think it starts over here at zero and it's going to follow this channel of growth and price appreciation all throughout our lifetimes for sure. Who knows what it's going to do, you know, 100, 200 years from now, but I think it's going to exist then. So it's in this channel. And meanwhile, it's doing this in the channel based on business cycle. So right now we've been on this kind of downswing in the business cycle um, where, and then as of just the last few weeks, we've had, it's been back on an upswing again. And we could talk about why from a macro perspective, I think that's happening. Um, why I got it wrong, got it right, then got it wrong. we can talk about all that kind of stuff. But I just think that's what's going to do. So if you're just a long-term holder and you really believe in the whole Bitcoin story, honestly, the best thing to do is just dollar cost average into it. Or just if you want to ape into it today, because today is a great day, why not? Then ape into it today and then just hold it. I tell people to have a minimum time horizon of at least 10 years when you hold this thing. So for people today who are just getting into it, it's February 2022. Don't even plan on touching the balance until 2032. And if you can do that, if you can just think of this like this is sort of like a retirement account or a financial independence account, 10 years from today, you, I think it will literally transform your life if you're able to do that. It takes, it's harder, it's harder than it sounds, right? All you got to do is sit and wait. Patience is everything, but very few people have that kind of patience to sit through the volatility. Yeah, I, I would say I, I personally come from like the can slim growth investing sort of strategy. Yep. Sitting on your hands is the hardest thing to do. Yep, it is so sure. difficult. But why don't we, I, I have a, a few different questions off of what you said. I do want to discuss macro, but in a moment, um, I want to go back a little bit. As you're sort of starting to discuss Bitcoin with your clients, who have money with you. What is that conversation like? Like, I'm assuming a lot of them are not necessarily like, oh yeah, let's just dive in on anything. Some of them may just be like, I trust you with my money, go nuts. But what what were some of the pushback conversations like? Sure. Well, that's, that's how it mostly is. Like I said, so back in 2019, most of my clients trusted me because a lot of them are my friends, you know? So I started as a little friends and family business has grown a lot since then, but it's basically other doctors, nurses that I work with, administrators, uh, things like that. And they're like, you sound almost crazy when you're talking about Bitcoin, um, but I trust you. If you really think it's worth it, please don't put that much in our portfolio was kind of the conversation back then. It's like, so we would put, you know, 1% allocations or even half a percent allocations back then. But then, like I said, so I, on the, on the one hand, I got to do uh, every month, I write a letter to my clients. So every month I would talk a little bit more about Bitcoin, like, hey, you know, here's this property about it. Here's why it's better money. Here's why it's so much better than government fiat, blah, blah, blah. And we'd keep talking about it. And then, oh, by the way, check out the price appreciation, right? I mean, so we started talking about this back when it was well below $10,000 per Bitcoin and putting it into, in, into our accounts. And so... Um, they had they people push back much less when they see their accounts going up up much more than it would have uh, gone up otherwise. It, it's amazing how much that that helps uh, win over people, right? And so and so, but then the same kind like right now, I, I feel terrible for people who have gotten in. I actually have some investors who 
they came in, you know, everybody gets excited. So if you guys remember back last year, about a year ago, February, the price was just ripping, right? It was like sub 10, then it went to sub 20, and then it ripped up and got all the way up to uh, in the 60,000s. And everybody was just freaking out about it. Um, and, uh, and, then, and then kind of the floor dropped out. So I had a bunch of new clients that came in on that earlier peak in the year, and I might be off on my was it 60,000? Let me back up a little bit. Yeah, back then, April. Yeah, so around that range. And then so, but the clients who came in then were kind of disenfranchised because they're like, well, I thought this thing only went up and then we crashed. And then we worked our way back in after that painful summer after China banned all the miners and kicked them out of the country. We worked our way back up into the 60,000s again, and then we dumped again. And so for some people, they've had only a bad experience so far. And I really do feel bad for them. I try to encourage them like as a coach, and I'm just like, you are getting stronger. You are learning what it means to be a hodler. You have endured pain. You've already endured at two 50% drops just in the last year. Like that's, that's no fun for sure. And so and I just keep telling them like, but think about the long-term picture. Like Bitcoin isn't going anywhere. Look at all of these stories of Bitcoin adoption that are going on all around the world. Think about your friends. Like five years ago, most people hadn't even, either hadn't heard of it or they just thought it was a joke or something that's only used by criminals, right? And then the whole ESG narrative came along and that kind of went again too. And now we're talking about, you know, companies adopting it countries making it legal tender and using volcanoes to power Bitcoin. I mean, this is just crazy um, how much things have changed. It's like a sci-fi movie in real time watching uh, the network adoption of Bitcoin. So that's how I focus my clients. And we kind of keep that long-term view in my funds. You know, most of my clients are different than how I manage Bitcoin myself. And I'll just take, uh, you know, 30 seconds to do a little tangent. My clients, a lot of them hire me because they don't like volatility and I'm more of a volatility manager than anything. And so that's the only reason why I ever trade Bitcoin. And I, I, I'm going to stop talking about trading Bitcoin on Twitter because I think it throws too many people off. What most people should do and what I personally do is I buy it, I dollar cost average into it. I hold it hopefully for forever, um, but at least for 10 years. Um, but we'll see what happens in 10 years. Maybe it won't get taxed at that point because government will recognize it as legal tender. Uh, and that'll, that'll be a different story. I want to use it because I think it should be spent and it should be the world's currency. Um, that's that. Over in Valeshire, I manage risk and volatility for people. So that's why I do things like I have stop losses. We, when I think that we're downtrending, I'll sell some, uh, I'll hedge against it in my hedge fund, I'll short um, like crypto exchanges and other things like that to kind of uh, pre to, um, you know, help dissipate the downside losses. And then we'll get back in again when I think we're back in another uptrend. So sorry, that was very long-winded. Oh, there's a lot to unpack there. And, and if some of these questions I have are a little too sensitive to your work, please just say as much, but sure. I am kind of curious if, if your focus is essentially to, to control volatility and you've already mentioned like you guys are shorting exchanges and other sort of crypto exposed assets to help balance that. What is sort of the maximum level of exposure you're willing to give a portfolio to Bitcoin then? Totally depends on my macro outlook. So going into the fourth quarter of 2021 in our hedge fund, so that's so the hedge fund is the most aggressive thing that I do. And then I have my separately managed account clients. They're aggressive, moderate, and uh, conservative. So very different levels of volatility. Here in my hedge fund, I don't care about volatility. Our goal is to just make uh, generate as much alpha as possible, generate as much profit for my clients as possible, above and beyond what the what a, you know normal 60-40 type investment would do. So in the fourth quarter of uh, 2021, 
I was fully expecting a parabolic move higher going into Q4 or Q1. And then, uh, as we all know, that didn't happen, right? So what I think happened is that the macro view changed where um, basically in Q4, I believe we peaked from a GDP growth perspective. We stopped accelerating at that point. Um, and then we, we kind of went over the hill and now we're, we're on the downslope of that. We're decelerating from a GDP perspective. I also assumed we were peaking in inflation in December as well. I will say that that literally has just changed in this past week. And I think that's why we're seeing the changing market dynamics that we are. So, um, and I wanna answer your question. When I'm very bullish, I'll go very bullish in the hedge fund. I was about 70% long and I had call options, Bitcoin. I was, I was long Bitcoin miners, things like that. We were gonna shoot the lights out if Bitcoin continued to go parabolic. It didn't, so I actually ended up having a tough December. I didn't turn, I turned, went from bullish to neutral like the final week of December, and then I actually flipped bearish the first week of January when the price of Bitcoin was something like 46K or something. I heard Jerome Powell speak and I said, wow, he's actually serious about um, raising rates. He's, he's talking about being hawkish, I think, at the wrong time uh, because I think market fundamentals, the, the underlying macro stuff that I look at, like I said, I think they've peaked and they're going to decelerate from here. That's the wrong time for the Fed to be putting on the brakes. Uh, I was right throughout January until the very kind of end of January. And then we had an abrupt bottoming both in Bitcoin and then a little bit later, the other risk on assets. They since have have taken off again. Why did that happen? So and if that's OK, I'll, I'll slightly dip into the macro just because uh, that's what um, yeah, that's what I think about a lot. So what I think happened is I do think we did peak uh, in the fourth quarter for GDP growth and we're decelerating, but I think that inflation is actually going to come in hotter than expected. So I don't know that we're out of the woods yet for this super, super high, really unfortunate inflation, right? It, it just ruins quality of life for everybody. That's what I hate about government fiat. One of the things I hate about government fiat, it's making life miserable for people. And I think it's going to come in high. And I think the market has sniffed that out. So because of that, when that happens, when inflation stays high, even with decelerating economic growth, risk on assets still can do pretty well, actually, which is kind of ironic. Most people um, associate that with a bad environment for risk on assets. But what does that mean? So interest rates on the long end of the US Treasury curve are staying high because it kind of coincides with what inflation is doing. Things that are associated with that, like financials, financial equities, they tend to do well when rates are rising. So financial stocks, what I thought they were going to be coming down, they've actually bucked the trend and they're going up. Energy has been holding on strong. And that's actually part of what's driving these high inflation numbers is that oil itself uh, has been at very high levels. Uh, and then other just like tech stocks, Bitcoin and related assets, they all tend to do well in that environment. Um, so that's why I think we have that abrupt change. Um, for the next several weeks, um, but things can change again, and and we can talk about that too if we want. But I'll, I'll stop there. I, I uh, I'm down to. I do want to. We will dive heavy into this literally after this one question. Um, but I do kind of want to ask on the conservative side of the fund: Are you more focused on the, like populating that with bonds potentially, or are there sort of REITs or other value, maybe commodity stocks? Can you just talk to us a little bit about what a conservative Bitcoin exposed portfolio maybe looks like? Sure. So I think, first of all, I think bonds are an absolutely terrible long-term investment. So I'm, I'm with Greg Foss on that, right? I'm one of the Oss brothers, Foss, Moss, and Ross. Um, I, I, uh, I, I hate them as much as he does for the long run. They're literally uh, return-free risk. You're just basically saying, I'm going to lock in money and I'm going to lose it. 
it over the long run. And, and, you know, you'll pay me 1% and in the meantime, it'll depreciate like 7% or more per year. And won't that be great? So there's basically no reason to hold bonds over the long run. I very much believe that. That said, when you go into a risk off environment, when people are scared, some things happen predictably. One is that everybody sells their equities for the most part. And they, so when they sell that, that means they're hoarding cash. They're buying the US dollar. So that's why the dollar is known as kind of the, um, the ultimate risk off asset. Just under the dollar is US treasuries, long dated US treasuries. For the most part, people tend to buy those. And so when you buy a bond, the price goes up and the yield goes down. They're like a teeter totter uh, inverse of each other. And so that's usually what happens. And that's what's interesting is we're not seeing that now. Yields are still rising, bond prices are going down. That suggests we're not in a risk off environment. The bond market is usually pretty smart and in tune with that kind of thing. So if we are in a risk off environment, and I'll skip ahead a little bit, I think we're getting into one in Q2. Q1 is kind of surprising that it it's, might not be one right now. And that's why I think we're having this little liftoff. I think we're going to dump again, personally. So I think we're going to get back to a risk off environment, and it's going to be kind of ugly. If that were the case, one thing to look for is you you'll should see the US dollar spiking in value, and you should see long dated US treasuries also going up in value and yields falling uh, concurrently with that. So that's the only time I hold bonds in our um, portfolios. It's when I think we're going into a serious risk off environment and it's usually only for like a couple of months uh, at the most at a time. And then for the rest of the, you know, the quarters and years, I don't hold any bonds. This may be difficult because I think we're on the same page. <laughs> um, I personally don't buy into this note. I think this is a pump fake. There is volume coming in, but we're still below on major indexes below their 50 day moving averages. There's nothing that the Fed has done or said that's made me change my mind. Oh, they're they're going to repump the market. This was, in in all fairness, like this was an artificial market we've seen for about the last 22 months, 20, 23 months. And it'll be interesting. I, I am kind of curious though. So you said that your stance on inflation has shifted. Um, what were the components or what were the factors that helped you sort of change your mind about that? Basically, what I was talking about with what um, risk on assets are doing, how there was basically a, a phase transition that you probably noticed at the end of January. That's when Bitcoin bottomed and went back up. And I didn't believe it. And I was very public about that. I don't believe this. I was still shorting it at the time, not shorting Bitcoin. I don't short Bitcoin, just so everybody knows. I was shorting uh, crypto exchanges uh, and miners. Uh, that's what I do kind of as proxies. That changed and uh, treasury yields, long-term yields kept rising. And so prices kept falling. That suggests that they don't believe um, that we're going into this sort of risk-off uh, risk environment. So something changed. And I agree with you that I think this is a pump fake. I think that what it's going to do is bring in tons of new bullish people, tons of money who are going to believe it. And then it's really going to wreck a lot of people. And I hate to say stuff like that, but that's kind of my view too. So I don't know how long this lasts. That's why I'm using sort of tight trailing stock on a lot of things I do right now. I think we go up for maybe weeks. And then as we get closer to the second quarter and more data starts coming in, and if we do see a deceleration in inflation and a continued deceleration in economic indicators, then we're going to revert, I think, back to a risk-off environment. And um, and it could get ugly. And I, this is the, the thing I keep talking about, and I hate talking about trading Bitcoin, but Bitcoin is so perceptive because it's the world's only true free market. It, it figured this out in uh, March of 2020 when we had a similar environment. And then the other similar environment was the fourth quarter of 2018. And Bitcoin, if you remember, if we, you know, you guys have been in it long enough. So 
2018 from January to November, Bitcoin dropped from about 20,000, just under 20,000 to like 6,500. So that was a huge drop, something like a 60 some percent drop already. And then it went totally like flatline sideways. And then it dumped 50% on top of that um, in about November to into December of 2018. Really painful, super awful. And we have the exact same type macro setup as we did back then. That's why I think it's possible that we do that again. It depends what we do in the meantime. We may prop up back to like maybe 50,000 or, you know, hover around this kind of 40 to 50 range for a little while. I wouldn't surprise me to see another 50% dump. That, by the way, shouldn't offend people or scare people. That would be a fantastic buying opportunity. And that's what I kind of hope happens because if you can anticipate it and raise cash for it, then you can like back up the truck and, and just load up on Bitcoin at that point uh, for the long run, you know, sell a kidney, sell an eyeball, you know, whatever, you, you know, it's lamps, chairs. I got a lamp back there. I could sell a lava lamp right there. I could sell. Um, so things like that. I'm kidding, by the way, this is not an individual investment advice, but but it's possible that this could happen because this scenario has played out before. And I think we're setting up for a similar scenario, just like March 2020, just like fourth quarter 2018. My fellow clubs, the Bitcoin conference is back. Bitcoin 2022, April 6th through the 9th is the ultimate pilgrimage for the Bitcoin ecosystem. The Bitcoin conference is the biggest event in all of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We're leveling up and making this bigger and better than ever. I'm talking straight to the moon with the four day long festival in the heart of Miami at the Miami Beach Convention Center. This has something for everyone. Whether you are a high-powered Bitcoin entrepreneur, a core developer, or a Bitcoin newbie, Bitcoin 2022 is the ultimate place for you to be with your people and celebrate and learn about the Bitcoin culture. So make sure to go to b.tc forward slash conference to lock in your official tickets and use promo code Satoshi for 10% off. Want more off? Pay in Bitcoin and you'll receive $100 off general admission and $1,000 off whale pass. Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history. Um, I love it. I mean, I'm all for it. Let me stack sats at a cheaper rate. Right. Yep. It's a, it's a, I mean, I stack every day regardless, but Pop, Papa can use a whole coin here or there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um. Talk to us a little bit though about, so I personally am in a different school of thought right now where I think this four-year cycle has been broken. I think we anticipated a happening increase, a, a shoot up in the price, which we have seen every four years. And it did, it took about seven months for the price to really start to rip post happening in 2020, but we haven't really seen that crash that typically followed these parabolic rises on each four-year cycle. So where or what factors are you paying attention to, to trigger that? Yeah. So first, first point is I don't think the four-year cycles uh, are going to exist anymore. I think they were, they were a past thing. They were very obvious in retrospect that they were going on. They were primarily driven by the miners and by the four-year happening cycle. 
I just think it's very different now. So I think, you know, most of the Bitcoin that's ever going to be created has been created to this point. I think we're up to around 19 million or so. So 2 million left over the next, you know, 119 years. Um, and we'll see most of that, obviously, within the next like 20 years. Those same mechanics that that drove that four-year cyclical price, I don't think exist anymore. Miners now don't have to sell Bitcoin at nearly as much as they used to for capital expenditures. They have access to the public markets. They have access. They can borrow money. They can you know sell equity. They can do lots of things to in order to just uh, uh, produce and then hold Bitcoin on their balance sheets. They can even borrow money from like the equity markets or from you know borrow money and use that to buy Bitcoin on top of the the mining that they're doing. So I just don't think miners drive the price of Bitcoin so much anymore. And I think Bitcoin now officially just trades as an accepted macro asset. And in that in that scenario, that means it's it's uh, it's going to rise and fall based on business cycles and other macroeconomic indicators like every other asset does, like stocks do, bonds do, commodities do, blah, blah, blah. So that's what I'm expecting going forward. The only one major thing about Bitcoin that's different and that most Bitcoiners understand and the world still does not understand is that not only is Bitcoin the best risk on asset that the world has ever seen, it's also the best risk off asset the world has ever seen. So the, the role that the US dollar plays right now is as the world's reserve currency and as the premier risk off asset, meaning that when everyone is scared and they want to take risk off the table, they do that by selling everything else and holding US dollars. At some point, there's going to be enough people like all of us here that think, well, Bitcoin is so much better than the US dollar. Why would I ever sell everything and go into the dollar? I should be selling everything going into Bitcoin. That we're still the very, very small minority of people who understand that and understand it's the world's risk off asset. We need to have, you know, the majority or close to the majority of market participants believing that as well. And once they do, then Bitcoin becomes, which is amazing, and that has never happened, I believe, simultaneously the best risk off and risk on asset at the same time. And that that's just to say it's the greatest asset that has ever existed. At some point, the market cap will get so big in, in Bitcoin when it does that. And I don't know, I, I think that that happens somewhere between 20 trillion and $100 trillion market cap for Bitcoin. I think it's basically when it has absorbed most of the value of the world's fiat currencies and starts to um, absorb most of the world's store of value properties, you know, gold, real estate, stocks, bonds, they all have store of value, a store of value component to them. Bitcoin, I believe, will just over time eat up that stuff. It's, you know, it's the super massive black hole that's sucking in all that value. Um, it's inevitable to me, but how fast that happens, I don't know. It could be years. It could be decades. I'm not sure. Yeah, if, if any of us had that magic ball, uh, let me know. I'll right. pay for your flight to Vegas, and we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna get a lot of sats after that trip. Exactly. You bring up a, a valid point, and this is a question that I also know you don't have the magic ball to. But there is there is this coupling of the equities market and Bitcoin. The prices rising and falling as such. Uh, the question is two parts. Firstly, what do you think has really instigated this? Has it been the increased offering of Bitcoin equities in the public markets? And secondly, how do we decouple? Because this was supposed to be a hedge against the US economy, essentially. This is kind of a loaded question, and it really depends on the time frame you're looking at. So so a couple of things. Short-term time frames, if everybody is in a risk-off, scared, panic mode, the correlation of all assets basically goes to one or, or, and not all assets. So it could go to negative one relative to the U S dollar, meaning that, you know, people sell everything and buy the dollar. 
Um, or, and by selling everything, that means selling Bitcoin, selling altcoins, selling equities, selling real estate, selling whatever. That's what we say when, they're, when the correlation approaches one. That's what people do when they're panicked. When people are less panicked, we see that correlation number drop. It gets lower. So it's not perfectly correlated. And it's only, it only approaches one during those kind of scary risk off times. The most recent example was March of 2020. The other thing is over the long run is it's it's been similar to US equities on a long-term perspective because Bitcoin and equities are taking on the function of a store of value. So the US dollar is a horrible store of value, right? It depreciates, you can, you can count on it depreciating over time and being a terrible store of value. Because of that, people are desperate to find stores of values and other things. That's why everybody is, you know, in stock in the stock market, even though even if they're not comfortable with stocks and have no idea what they're doing, they still own stocks if they're if they can, if they can afford them. That's not even to mention the poor people that literally don't have any assets and all life is just horrible for them because it's getting more and more expensive year after year because the cost of living is, is going up year after year. So because they all have this sort of store of value function, real estate is included as well, their correlation tends to be kind of very similar over the long run, you know, not not one, but you know, 0 0.6, 0 0.7 in that in that range. Interestingly, though, in kind of like a, if you're talking like kind of quarters to, to years, Bitcoin is is traditionally kind of uncorrelated with almost any other asset. And I think that's because people are just sort of trying to figure out what kind of asset it really is. Um, I expect it to get less correlated with risk on assets, especially as more and more people own it. And like I talked about earlier, once it transitions in everyone's mind that, hey, this actually is the best risk off asset, that's where it will decouple itself from uh, like stocks, small cap stocks, tech stocks, all that kind of stuff it's correlated to now. It will decouple from that. And, um, and, and then that correlation, I think, will go back more to like zero. And, and if anything, Bitcoin will become more correlated with simply with the US dollar until it kind of, it'll jostle with it uh, to be the world's sort of safe haven asset. And it'll eventually win and surpass it. And then everything else might be I don't know what's going to happen at that point. That's a little too hard to tell, but um, it, it may become just simply the world's greatest risk off asset at that point. Um, we'll see. Hard to say. We're, we're, we're still years away from that, I think. Um, I, I love that you are able to sort of explain this in terms that are not only for someone like me, very finance oriented, but digestible for everyone else. Those of you watching, you better be taking notes. This is, this is gold right here. I want to it's talk better than gold. It's Bitcoin. <laughs> gold, gold is old, man. Just kidding. Sorry. Uh, Alex ahead. McShane, that's the quote. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I want to now talk a little bit broader on a global scale, first focusing on just Bitcoin. What effect, do, like we saw, for example, China banning mining, boom, hash rate crashes, Bitcoin price crashes. What are other political effects on a global scale that you're keeping an eye on? Russia announcement earlier today, India announcement last week, US, whatever they decide to do. Uh, what is it that you're keeping an eye on? So this is pretty unpopular with people, but I, I'm I'm similar to Warren Buffett in the in the matter of I don't really care about the news and I don't really think it affects Bitcoin much. And, and with the caveat that only when it's real significant news to the Bitcoin network 
that's like very tangible. And for example, when China banned miners and made it illegal for them to operate and they said, you have to get out and you have like a month to do it. That was a hugely powerful, tangible effect to the Bitcoin network, right? Literally, we watched the hash rate dump over 50% in a month. That was crazy. That was unprecedented. We, the price followed it. It also went down uh, over 50% when that happened. That's the kind of news, the only kind of news that I'm really interested in as far as do I make an investment decision based on something like that? Yes, I would. Is it good news that Russia is talking about, you know, adopting it and regulating uh, Bitcoin? Uh, yes. Is it is it cool that they're probably going to start, hopefully start mining it and we're starting the whole game theory of the nation states going on with the major, major players? Yes, that would be great. Do I think that has a significant effect, though, on the short term price? I actually don't. I know that some people may read that and be like, oh, I'm going to buy Bitcoin because, you know, maybe Russia is going to start buying it as a reserve asset or something like that. But I don't really believe that moves price the way that macro conditions move price. So I'm not a great source to talk about when it comes to geopolitical kind of issues because I honestly don't really care. Um, it doesn't affect, I don't base any trading or investment decisions based on things like that. And if it does have an effect, it's kind of like when um, companies report earnings and you'll see a pop in the price because it did something, but then it usually settles back down and kind of goes to about where it was. That's what I, that's how I view news events. Do they cause really short-term traders and algorithmic traders to make moves? Um, and, but for the most part, it doesn't change any kind of longer term perspective that I have. All that does say, I'll say one final thing and then stop. Uh, the only thing it really does is it just continues to show that network adoption, adoption of Bitcoin across the world, whether you're a person or a company uh, or a nation state, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. I don't know when it's going to happen. El Salvador happened about five years earlier than I thought it would uh, with a nation state adopting it and considering it legal tender. But since it did that, it just opened the floodgates for anything is possible, really. And so um, I don't know how fast adoption occurs, but I do know that it, it, it is inevitable. You're not wrong. I, I'd say the perfect example of this is you, if you look at when the news came out about El Salvador, everyone and their mother thought this is going to... This is the 100K news, and the price literally went down. Right, yeah. It's actually, the, yeah, it's still way down from when they first announced that. So, or no, it's not. Now it's up a little bit, but it was this in cool. the meantime. So, yeah, so it doesn't, it, it seems like it should have more of an effect, and all that does is strengthen the long-term picture of it, and it should give people lots of confidence that, look, this isn't going anywhere, right? You can't stop Bitcoin. Stopping Bitcoin is as easy as stopping the internet, which is to say you can't. It's just ubiquitous. It's everywhere. You can make it difficult. If you're a government like China, you can make it very difficult for your citizens to own it and to mine it and to do things like that, but you can't stop it. And as long as there are any countries in the world that are amenable to Bitcoin, and there are tons, right, and tons of U.S. states who are amenable to it as well, um, it, it, there's just there's nothing you can do about it. So it's definitely inevitable. Not necessarily imminent, these price increases, but definitely inevitable over the long run. I think it also just makes sense, your, your outlook on this, because your time horizon is so long, especially when it comes to Bitcoin, that it's like mm -hmm. the little news cycle here, it doesn't impact your long-term investment decisions right. or outlooks. So I won't bore you with any more questions in that vein. Um, and and we'll, we'll discuss a little bit more about these equity markets. Before we do that, I want to shout out Rasta. I love the name. Thank you for liking and subscribing. If you are watching and you're not subscribed, please make sure you do. Uh, additionally, if you have not already, make sure you go 
buy your tickets to Bitcoin 22, use code YTMAG. Dr. Jeff Ross himself will be in attendance. He's going to be speaking there. I myself will be there. My co-host, Alex McShane, Chris, our producer, we're all going to be down there. Use code YTMAG. Um, we'll throw some more carrot codes into these chats as well. But diving back into a couple of things with you, uh, Jeff, I want to get a sense of what you're paying attention to with uh, crypto equities. Uh, I will say the bad word. Uh, I'm, I like to say I'm the equities guy here. Um, what are some crypto exposed equities that you like and some that you're just like, no, actually I don't. Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm, um, you know, I come from the equities world. So that's sort of my, my playground. And in fact, what I do for in within my hedge fund and uh, my Veilshare accounts, I don't own spot Bitcoin. There's a way that I can do it. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a clunky way to do it. And I like to be able to trade it if I need to. So I like to uh, buy and hold and sometimes sell equities that are related to Bitcoin um, and the whole crypto space um, because it's just so much simpler to do. And what I like about equities, and, and I'll give a quick overview first, what I love about Bitcoin related equities is most of them are basically leveraged ways to play the price movement of Bitcoin. So if we're in a Bitcoin bull market, the, the leveraged equities tend to go up even more in value than Bitcoin itself does, than the underlying asset does. And in a bear market, they tend to decrease in value uh, more quickly than Bitcoin itself does. Case in point, so just from November through the end of January, like third week of January, um, we had this big plunge in the price of Bitcoin. It dropped about 50%. What did worse? Uh, Bitcoin miners did much worse. Crypto exchanges, Coinbase. I love shorting Coinbase. No offense if you're a Coinbase fan. Love shorting Coinbase. Uh, that, that did worse. So my hedge fund actually did better because I was short a lot of those things. And I, and I actually really love miners, by the way, and I, I'm a big fan of them, so I don't mean anything. A lot of people get really upset when I say that I short Bitcoin miners, but uh, it's, just, it's always just a short-term thing as a hedge. And then when I flip around, so when we flip bullish again and I feel like we've bottomed, those very same things tend to do better. Like I said, they'll outperform the, the spot price of Bitcoin. So Bitcoin miners, I think when we're in a bull market are fantastic things to own. You know, I like Hut8, I like Marathon, I, you know, all the uh, bit farms. Um, I think they're all great ones. There's, there's many more Riot. Um, if you want kind of an ETF exposure to miners and crypto exchanges, which I think is a pretty solid play, especially over the long run, there's an ETF called Block, B-L-O-K, um, that has uh, miners in it and it has exchanges like, so like Galaxy Digital, Mike Novogratz's company. That company, by the way, has been my best performer ever. It just shot the lights out in my hedge fund. I actually sold it late December, early January, I think for the, you know, uh, and took, took profits on it. But it, it, it's just a, a killer company. If you want, if you're trying to, you know, generate alpha and make games. Um, I don't love it that it's, you know, an, an, uh, an altcoin casino. That's not, that's not my favorite part about it, but there, you know, all these businesses I think are basically riding the coattails of Bitcoin. Some do it for fantastic purposes. Some do it for more disingenuous purposes, just simply to profit. So I'm not as crazy about those. The companies that I love are like the, um, Strike, Jack Mahler's company, love Strike, Swan. I know the guys at Swan, love Swan. Um, I want both of those companies to go public so I can invest in my hedge fund and just you know hold them for forever. Um, love supporting companies like that. And that's why I like uh, owning miners as well. So that's kind of my take on it. Um, I like to use those. They're easy to buy and sell within my fund. And like I said, you can kind of accentuate your gains in either direction, uh, whether you're using them as a hedge on the short side or um, to bolster on the long side. Oh, and I didn't mention MicroStrategy. MicroStrategy obviously is kind of 
kind of a, it's basically an ETF, you know, that we still don't have a spot ETF by MicroStrategy, right? I mean, that's, they just have tons and tons of Bitcoin on their balance sheet. Um, it's kind of a leveraged way to play Bitcoin. Um, so if you want to hold it. And then, you know, I still like Grayscale. I tweeted a little bit earlier in the last year, the spot price of Bitcoin is down, I think 5%. I don't have it in front of me, but down 5% from one year ago, which is unfortunate. But GBTC is down about 35%. Why? Because it was trading at a premium back in last February. And since then, that premium has not only gone away to zero, it's gone well below zero. So now it's trading at like a 23% discount to, the, to its net asset value, to the NAV. That's unfortunate because that was one of my larger holdings in, in my Veilshire accounts. I do think though, and it's what I talked about, at some point that discount to NAV will go away. And when it and, and it, why will it go away? Because at some point the, the SEC will approve a Bitcoin spot ETF. I think almost to the day that that happens, the discount to NAV disappears and goes to zero. That means you'll get the price appreciation of underlying spot uh, Bitcoin. And as that discount to NAV goes back to zero, you get that as sort of an added bonus on top of it. So while that's been a terrible investment for the past year, I think at some point in the next year or two, it'll actually outpace uh, the price of Bitcoin itself. Does the creation of a spot ETF happen before or after the U.S. government views Bitcoin as a commodity in your mind? I think it happens before that. And I don't know, I don't know the timing of either of those things. I do think that there's a good likelihood that it happens, that we get a spot Bitcoin ETF approved this year. I think probably the second half of 2022. If I had to guess, that's what I would say. Um, it could be 2023, but um, I have no insight in that. I know that Gary Gensler likes it. And as I talked about on Preston Pish's show, I think that Gensler is holding the spot Bitcoin ETF hostage in order to get his other demands met that he wants to clean up crypto exchanges. He, he considers all altcoin, we're digressing here, sorry, but he considers basically all altcoins to be unregistered securities and that chaps his hide, he doesn't like that. He's very clear about that, that they're coming after you unless you come to us first kind of mentality. The best way to get at all of those unregistered securities called altcoins is by going after the crypto exchanges that house them. So that's the easiest point of attack because they're centralized. So I think that's what they're going to do. I think once that stuff gets cleaned up, and I don't know how they clean it up, I don't know what that means for altcoins. Do they get a slap in the wrist? Do they get fined some random amount of money? Do they try to completely shut them down? I don't see how that's possible, but um, it's possible. Um, I know I know people say you go, you know, you unplug the AWS servers and then they're out. Um, but I, th I think it's more complicated than that personally. So whatever that whatever happens, he's holding that hostage until these demands are met. Once they're met, then I think he approves the spot Bitcoin ETF. And hopefully that happens in the second half of this year. How much Bitcoin do you think Gensler has? Because I'm convinced a lot of these guys hold things up because they're still trying to accumulate. Yeah. I have no idea. I think he owns it for sure. Um, how much? Probably quite a bit. I mean, he's been, he's known about it for, uh, he taught the course, right, at MIT. So he knows about Bitcoin and um, he knew about it from, for, he's known about it for several years. I don't know how much, but I do think he owns some for sure. And I do think he favors Bitcoin. I think he's made that extremely clear in his comments. I do want to present one question, if I can find it, that uh, one of our audience, our viewers, sent us via Twitter really quickly before I forget to ask you it. Obviously coming from the healthcare space, if you are interested in healthcare investing, you did, everyone should check out uh, Jeff's interview with Preston. They talked a lot about different healthcare stocks and the future that you see in that industry. 
validated me because I was heavily invested in genetic type stocks nice. as well as tele, telecommunication stocks. So that was awesome. Um, but what, if at all possible, can Bitcoin fix in the healthcare industry in your eyes, in your mind? It's a good question. And most people don't get this because they're, they don't seem to be related. But what I tell people uh, regularly is that, you know, what Bitcoin offers is a truly free market. And the healthcare, traditional healthcare, needs nothing more than to be free and open instead of being opaque and stodgy. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's so inefficient. It, it makes you want to just pull your hair out. That's why I don't have any hair anymore is because of working in healthcare. You know, I, and I, nothing against, like, I love my physician friends. I, I love being a doctor, all that kind of stuff. I'm not hacking on the healthcare um, field in general, but most people who work in healthcare, especially who have been in there, you know, 10 years or more, they all kind of have that same sort of uh, feeling towards it kind of resentment, kind of like I'm in this system that's way bigger than me and I'm just a cog in the system and um, I kind of hate it because I have to play by their rules or I'm out. And that's just how the system has become. So it's, it's so much, it has removed itself so far away from the old historical physician-patient relationship that I think it's tragic and super sad. There's all of these people in the middle of that relationship who are you know, taking fees and telling you what to do and, and you have all these legal issues and, and you're constantly under threat of being sued, all these kind of things like that. What Bitcoin could offer is simply free market uh, transparency to healthcare. So if you were, so say I were still being a doctor, say I was starting a practice today, I was a radiologist and, and something called an interventional radiologist, which means I did little surgeries, image guided surgeries. I could have, I could open a practice today and just be like, you know what, we accept Bitcoin. I'm going to put Bitcoin on my balance sheet. If I were counseling anybody as your consultant to any physicians out there, I would strongly recommend doing that. And I'm not kidding. Like Take your balance sheet. Every every group has a balance sheet of whatever, you know, millions of dollars. 10%, take 10% and put that into Bitcoin. Yes, it's volatile, but it's volatile more to the upside. So over the long run, um, that will actually, be, like, like Michael Saylor is doing with MicroStrategy, that will probably be your biggest part of your business. It will actually, actually generate the most profits is the Bitcoin you hold as a reserve asset. And if you allow patients and you create this sort of Bitcoin ecosystem and just kind of ignore the middle players in between, like that's something, you know, doctors, I said this on Preston show too, doctors love to hate insurance companies, like, because they just literally, and I, I'm really sorry if there's any insurance people listening, but they make your lives miserable. They, they, a doctor says, I think we should do this for this patient. And the insurance company says, no. And you're like, what do you mean? No. And then you're fighting with the insurance company and the, the patients are crying and we're mad and all this kind of stuff. And then they only reimburse part of it or something like that. If you could get rid of all of that and just be like, look, the best doctors, everybody knows who they are because the current system we have with tech and social media, right? You can say, here's a good doctor. I recommend him for this surgery. Um, and, and, and then I can be like, Hey, you know what, I'll do this surgery. And I, and it's a free market because we actually, you know, right now, if you want to go get an MRI or you want to go get uh, your appendix removed or pick, pick a procedure, you have no idea what it's going to cost. And that's because it's all opaque. You don't know from hospital to hospital, what's more expensive. You don't know what insurance companies are going to pay for, or, you know, provide. Imagine if you could go and just see like, Hey, Dr. X, uh, has a 10 out of 10 rating for uh, doing appendectomies for removing your appendix. Um, and he charges uh, like in the mid range for the price, you would go with that guy 10 out of 10 times if you knew that if you had that transparency in the system. 
but right now you're sort of left in the dark with all that. So I'm really getting esoteric here, but basically what it does is that that free market application is absolutely what healthcare needs. It's literally the only thing that can fix the massive runaway costs of healthcare, especially in the US. It would make it so much better. It would improve patient-physician relationships. The solution, you know, I'm 47. I've been watching the healthcare debacle from a political perspective since the 80s. Even when I was a kid, I remember people talking about this. It will never, ever, ever be solved politically. It just will not. And so Bitcoin does this end around, kind of like how they do an end around the financial system. They need to do an end around on the on the uh, healthcare system as well and completely transform it from this whole like parallel financial system. And I believe that will happen. That's also inevitable. Um, but healthcare will be one of the last dominoes to fall because it's so huge and stodgy. I, I'm joking saying this, but you're really telling me that a bunch of lawyers in DC can't figure out what's best as far as healthcare goes. <laughs> Can you believe it? Uh, who would have thought? <laughs> um, I, I'm kind of curious because honestly, as you're talking, my, my head is racing because it's like, we're almost at this perfect time where you have the soundest money being accessible to citizens. You have technology starting to get implemented in the healthcare industry where you have ideas for longevity, you have ideas for gene editing, you have potential cures for diseases that we've never even thought we could. And the access to these doctors, you can be somewhere so long as you have internet access, hopefully we can democratize it in a way where the best doctor for what I need is located in London. I'm in LA. Well, you know what? Thank God I got an iPhone or thank God I have a, a video uh, conferencing capability. It almost seems like the merging of all the three of these things can really help break this industry. Yeah, totally. I think we're clearly at that point right now. So we finally have all of the pieces in place to transform it. And again, it's going to be outside of what the politicians are saying, the attorneys are saying, outside of uh, what the insurers are. So all these people who have like long time historical vested interest in the current traditional healthcare system, we need to just bypass all of them. And that's what technology does. That's what decentralization does, the internet does. And you're right, all the pieces are in place. That's why I'm just so excited about what the future is gonna bring. And especially for me, you know, I come from radiology, so that's just all digital images. So I was the guy, if you go get an MRI or a CAT scan or something, I'm the doctor who would look at the images and then dictate a report. And that's the report you see in your medical records. Mm -hmm. there's no reason that that can't be done by anybody. Like for instance, I I'm in Colorado. My last two years, I worked for a group out in New York. I, you know, I had, I was reading their patient list, even though I'm 2000 miles away sitting in Colorado, there's no reason I couldn't do that for any country anywhere in the world. Um, and then on top of that, to, to even further to your point, because of technology, AI, artificial intelligence is, is able. So the, uh, all I'm looking for as a radiologist is patterns on the screen. And so I look at a thing and I, I look at a CT and I said, well, you know, normally the small bowel looks like this. Normally the liver looks like this. This doesn't look the same. Something's wrong. And, and it's pattern recognition. And so you can teach computers to do that same thing. And someday I believe this AI will put all people, all radiologists out of a job because it's just, it's just basically solving puzzles and pattern recognition. And they'll be able to do it, you know, a hundred times faster. And, you know, at one, one hundredth of the cost of hiring a whole team of radiologists to do it. And so that's going to help drive down healthcare costs. So yes, I'm very excited about the future. We're not there yet, but I think we're sort of in the ugly transition phase right now. And it's going to be uh, much better 10, 20 years from now. You, you, almost, uh, you almost fully answered my next question, which is, in, in fact, AI entering the healthcare space. Like I'm, a, I'm a data nerd myself, like image recognition and those type of stuff is already in effect. I, ha I was having this conversation last night with my dad about, honestly, I view 
automation entering the healthcare industry as going to as the most disruptive uh, transition of work, where you have hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt that many doctors have been collecting. They are going to. I I personally think it's more than just radiology. Are there certain healthcare jobs where you're like the human touch is required here? Yes, yes, and no. I think I think from being a radiologist. Well, first of all, let me let me backtrack. Patients, most patients still kind of want that patient physician relationship, especially older patients. They kind of want like somebody to actually lay eyes on you and actually you want to show that. I mean, it's cool. You can show stuff on a screen and be like, check out this rash. What do you think it is? But some things just require human touch to figure that out. And so that part will really never go away. There'll be some little aspect of that, but that's a small part of healthcare. I think especially being a radiologist, and I'm obviously biased, but the physical examination side of medicine has the importance of that has greatly been reduced over the last several decades because of the rise of imaging studies. So the fact that we can do an MRI or CT or ultrasound or x-ray and actually look inside of the person's body, you know, a, a, a clinician can, can do an exam and they can push on your belly and stuff and they can say, well, I think you might have appendicitis, but I'm not sure. You actually know the answer if you get a CT scan and look and like, I can actually say, yes, you have appendicitis. Yes, it's ruptured. Yes, you need surgery right now. So imaging has changed that. That's the advancements of technology. You know, I can look in your head and say, you know, the reason you're having headache, unfortunately, is you actually have a tumor in there. And, you know, you couldn't tell that from a physical, I can't push around and say, I have a tumor. You have to look inside. So, so technology has drastically improved medicine and clinical acumen. And so to your point, I think there are many things that will be replaced by technology. And as that stuff just gets better and better and better, you really don't need that human touch, except only for a small minority of cases. So yeah, that's, that's great. And I mean, if, even if it doesn't, that's what, so people will argue like, oh, you still need human touch. You still need, yes, but that's a very small minority. If you can transform the other 90% of kind of healthcare and medicine and make it more efficient and way better and, you know, cheaper, um, then why wouldn't you do that? And I think that's inevitable as well. Yeah. I feel like, uh, the lobbyists in DC will have some some of their own made up reasons as to why we shouldn't do that. But no, sure. I, I'm with you. I, I personally, I hate the healthcare system in this country, mm-hmm. um, but I, I don't try to act like I know the solution. I hope technology continues to push healthcare forward. I mean, look, what, 500, 600 years ago, human life ended by 40, 50 years old right. at, at the high end of things. Um, and here we are, average lifespan in America is over 70. Um, I don't know if you are familiar with or caught some of our conversation with Peter Diamandis last week, where we were talking longevity and sort of this idea that as healthcare technology continues to, to move forward, there's the potential that we are going to move the goalpost forward as well, as far as how long we live, just from a, a, someone with your sort of worldview as a, someone who understands the financial markets, someone who really understands healthcare and, and the effects of that. What, what worries you about a world where human life almost can exist for a hundred plus years? Is there concerns with that in your mind, as far as the economy goes, as far as healthcare capabilities go? Um, Or are you sort of, no, let's do it. Yeah. I mean, I'm all about longevity. I would say that, you know, humans, they have a way of making the world better and also screwing everything up at the same time too. So what happens if suddenly people are just living much longer? Um, 
I mean, then you, then you got to talk about things like, well, what about wars? What about overpopulation? Blah, blah, blah. I think human ingenuity always comes through in surprising ways and people learn how to live. You know, I think, you know, if you would have said 50 years ago that we, that the population would have exploded and longevity would have increased so much, we wouldn't have even believed it, you know, and that's, but that's just kind of how we are and we adapt and, and we improve. And, and so Generally, I think that's a very good thing. I don't think it's just healthcare in and of itself that actually, um, and that's, a, I think, a common misconception is that longevity is related to the quality of healthcare. I don't think that's true. I think as far as populations go, longevity is based more on individual lifestyle choices. So as a population, are you sedentary or not? do you actually have a good diet or not? And I would say that this whole fiat diet mentality that Americans have been on since like the 1950s and it's just gotten worse and worse and worse every decade. That's why we have tons of issues that we have. And if we could solve that and get people eating like way healthier, like way better nutrition, quit eating the process. And I don't wanna go down this tangent right now, but if, if uh, what I think is better nutrition, basically, um, if, if, if all Americans started doing that, obesity rates would massively decline. Uh, you know, high blood pressure issues, cancer, tons of things that people are dying from, heart attacks right now, strokes, all of that stuff would drastically come down. And that's what would improve longevity at, uh, from a population perspective. And then healthcare, just advances in healthcare would just sort of add to that as well. I mean, to be honest, Jeff, I can go down that rabbit hole with you. I'm, I'm a big believer that the farce of our food stamp system that allows you to go to McDonald's and buy a Big Mac or go to CVS and buy a candy bar yeah. is ludicrous because those same yes. people, unfortunately, don't have the best health care yeah. and you're not eating well. And then all of a sudden it's like this cycle that feeds into itself. Yeah, it's um, insane. I'm, I'm with you there. We could talk for hours on this kind of thing, obviously, but. That will be a conversation we will be having in Miami for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Um, I want to go back to Bitcoin a little bit and specifically miners. I don't know if you caught this, Mr. Wonderful, uh, Kevin O'Leary the other day talking about sort of his shift in some of the miners he's investing in due to some ESG mandates from above him coming down and saying, we're going to be very strict on what type of companies we want. He started looking into some of these miners uh, and then realized their sort of ESG or claims of being uh, carbon neutral come from buying carbon credits. I don't know what effect or factor that plays into some of your investment strategies or if you're paying attention to it, but would love your thoughts. So I didn't hear that, but I've heard enough of Kevin O'Leary. And first of all, I, I generally like him. I think he's a good, he's very bright. I mean, he knows how to make money. I think what he is more than anything, especially in terms of this whole ESG uh, Bitcoin miner movement that he's sort of orchestrating and leading he's a master marketer, right? He's, he's selling his book. So he's focused on, we are going to do ESG friendly things that society right now thinks is super important. And I have, look at this whole suite of products I have and what I'm investing in, and you can invest in this too. I think he's selling his book and I'm a big fan of the environment, right? And I, I think Bitcoin is actually very, very net positive for the environment. And so all of these sort of ESG arguments, I think are all misinformed and they're all, and, the, and I think the smart people like Kevin O'Leary who are, who are using these things 
are using it for his advantage and they're making the problem worse, not better. And I really wish he would quit doing that because he knows better. And he's, and like I said, he's doing that because he has a, a product offering that will benefit. It's kind of like Peter Schiff talking about all the benefits of gold and how stupid Bitcoin is, but he, he's a gold salesman. He wants people to buy his gold. So of course he's gonna talk the book on gold. That to me is frustrating, uh, and it makes and it makes for because and that's because they have followings. You know, Kevin O'Leary has millions and millions and millions of followers. People who and he's on TV all the time, CNBC and Bloomberg and blah blah blah. So it's frustrating when when he sort of brings the um, ESG narrative to the forefront, even though he knows better and he shouldn't be doing that because it makes the rest of our jobs harder where we have to talk about Bitcoin doesn't waste energy. It uses waste energy. It uses stranded energy. It doesn't steal from the power grids. It's just, it's, it's just not what it does, but he's, he like, he keeps pushing that narrative. And so people keep thinking and like, well, I, if I buy Bitcoin, I want to buy, or if I support miners, I'm only going to buy ones that are, you know, eco-friendly. And, and so like, on the one hand, you're like, well, of course I agree with that. Like I want eco-friendliness. I want the earth to do better, you know? And, but, but this is just so misleading and so disingenuous. It's the same things like Elizabeth Warren says, she's always saying these things that are like, that's not how it is, you know? And like, that's just not true. And then, so we have to spend the rest of our days saying, well, you know, that she, it's a half truth and this is only sort of right. And then this is just a flat out lie. And here's how it really is over here. So that's a really long-winded answer to say, I like Kevin O'Leary. I think he's talking his book and it's sort of frustrating and I wish he wouldn't do that. I mean, I don't hate what you're saying. I'm a big believer of, frankly, I was taught and fully believe anytime someone goes on CNBC or Fox business to talk about whatever stock they're buying, that's literally them trying to dump shares onto you. <laughs> that is that is to a T. It's right. almost like that to me is a sell signal. Yeah. Every single time I have something in my portfolio and I see a fund manager on, on whatever show say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm going long on this and I'm now in a quarter position or I'm yep. in a half position now. Yep. But that's just my strategy. Um, I also agree. I personally think the ESG mandates are just BS just to like make you think we're doing something here. My argument always goes back to how much energy does it take to maintain all the ATMs in America? Like yeah. just that. I don't want the whole banking system. Right. I mean, the New York, just how much, how much energy goes into maintaining every ATM around the country because they run 24 seven. Right. It's exact same thing as a Bitcoin miner. Right. So yeah. Yeah. We could go off on examples of that. I'll, I, I use Christmas lights as it, you know, Christmas was just around people had lights up. I'm like, you know, that uh, Christmas lights actually use more energy than the whole entire Bitcoin network. How do you feel about that? Like, do you think Christmas lights are a necessity, you know, or, well, they're kind of nice. Right. And so anyway, so you can go down. I, I like to talk with people about stuff like that, but yeah. I don't can, need can, that. Thank, yeah, yeah. thank you for that. I, I can yeah. always use a new little. Uh... There's another one. Yeah. Before we wrap things up, I do want to sort of ask you just if, if you don't mind sharing sort of what your maybe end of year outlook is maybe over the next 18 months, what are you expecting? Where are your expectations at? In terms of like price action, are we talking about? Just on a macro or scale of anything. Macro scale. Yeah. So macro scale, like I said, I think it's going to get ugly in the second quarter. And so the markets look ahead. So at some point, I think that the markets are going to see, that's why, you know, getting full circle from where we were at the very beginning of this conversation, this is probably uh, a little bit of a relief rally before things get darker is how I look at it. And I, I always caveat this with when the facts change, I change. Like I was very bearish 
Um, but I think the facts have changed. And the thing that I think has changed that's a little surprising to me is that inflation is still running hot, like probably as high as it was in December, which was like a 7% uh, print. We may have the January CPI numbers, which come out this week, somewhere right around there. And that may be why that would make sense to me why the different macro, why the different asset classes are moving, how they're moving right now. If the, if the market, if the numbers keep coming in and it starts to become uh, clear that inflation has peaked and is decelerating and GDP, which I think is clear already, is decelerating, second quarter could be really tough for risk on assets. And I still think that includes Bitcoin, even though we all think of it as the ultimate risk off asset, not enough of market participants around the world do agree with that. They think of it as a risk on asset. So they'll sell it and go to cash or they'll sell it and go to long-term US treasuries my opinion. Third quarter, uh, it looks like because we're, we look at year over year comparisons should actually be a reprieve. I actually think that's going to be the best quarter for Bitcoin um, as we kind of look ahead. So, you know, we're talking like June, July ish, somewhere in that kind of time frame. And this is this again, this all changes, but how the market cycles work. Fourth quarter, um, we come back to tough comparisons again, uh, because the fourth quarter we just had, if we just think back to how it was, everybody shot the lights out. It was just a great quarter. GDP was accelerating. Companies did really well. Inflation was super high, um, which is unfortunate. Um, but so we're going to be coming up to those comparisons in the fourth quarter of 2022. It's going to be hard to top those, which kind of, again, means that we're kind of looking for a downtrend in risk on assets. In general, I'm looking at uh, 2022 being kind of a wash for uh, risk on assets. Not a great year for Bitcoin if you want the price to go up. Fantastic year to be buying Bitcoin, right? So stacking sats, use 2022 as probably the last year to get what we consider cheap sats. I think this is the year to do it. I think 2023 is going to be a bang up year and beyond. And I think then we're just clearly going to be out of the five digit Bitcoin and into six digits. So 100,000 and above to me are just um, like an almost a certainty uh, in 2022, uh, excuse me, 2023 and beyond. And we're going to look back and we're going to can you believe we could buy a Bitcoin for $40,000. That's insane. You know, we're, we're going to be talking about Bitcoin, but then we'll probably be talking about just Satoshi's like, you know, because because it's going to be too way too big of a number to be talking about Bitcoin, because nobody's going to be able to afford one Bitcoin at that point. So we're going to be talking about ten thousand. How much are ten thousand satoshis worth? You know, or how many? What Mike? A hundred bucks. How many satoshis will that buy? So that's how I'm looking at 2022 stack sats, 2023 and beyond. Fantastic. Love that. And th there's one point you brought up that I think is so valid, which is while we may believe Bitcoin to be a risk off asset. The majority of the market participants, and this is not to say majority of the people, majority of the dollars invested in Bitcoin do not view it as such. What are, and, and I know we, we've talked at Nogzim about some of these things, but what are maybe some of the things that you're hoping or expecting will help that shift happen to these big money people who don't see it the way we do? So a couple of things I'm looking for. First is that the... Um, to date, the major institutional investors who have got into the Bitcoin space are the traders, the algorithmic traders who manage like big hedge funds, and they're playing the price movements of Bitcoin. They see it as a trade. They see it as a high, highly volatile asset akin to other altcoins. They don't really care what it is. They're just trading it for profit. And I think that's why we're seeing a lot of these kind of sideways choppy price action movements that we're seeing. What I'm waiting to see are is the other institutional investors who are managing billions and billions of dollars who are long only funds. So I think of like pension funds, endowments, these huge things that they're basically long only. They have 
hundreds of billions of dollars on their balance sheet. And they're like, we are going to put a 5% allocation to Bitcoin and we're never going to sell it. Like their, their ideal holding period, like Warren Buffett. And like, I think we should be with Bitcoin is forever. They, they, uh, you know, buy well and rarely sell is a, a thing I like to say. So I'm still waiting for those guys to come in. I think we, this is the year we start seeing some of them come in and then that will um, cascade in the coming years. That will put a huge floor under the price of Bitcoin and help at least the, the bottom level of this price channel to just continue to move up and to be very solidified. And then I think what happens is in terms of becoming like this, so that's step one in becoming risk off. Step two is nation state involvement. So what I think, what I would like to see is major countries, not just El Salvador, you know, and God bless them. I'm so glad uh, they're doing what they're doing. But other bigger countries start to put Bitcoin on their balance sheet as a reserve asset. And I think that's very, I don't, not only do I not think that's uh, impossible, I think it's inevitable also. Um, Just as gold was the reserve asset in the analog age, Bitcoin is obviously the perfect reserve asset for the digital age. And we are in the digital age now. So as governments transition to that and recognize that, and as, you know, a couple dominoes fall, then they're all going to start doing that. And I tell people like, if I had, if I could put a bug in the ear of, you know, Jerome Powell or whoever else in the government, I'd be like, dude, if you want your currency to survive, start putting Bitcoin on your balance sheet to solidify that. They used to do that with gold to strengthen the currency strengthen the US dollar by buying Bitcoin, strengthen whatever country you're in your currency by buying Bitcoin. If you don't do that, you will go out of existence, I think within a decade. The US, the the best currencies will last probably longer, but tons of small currencies, I think are going to get picked off one by one uh, and cease to exist as as their societies move into Bitcoin. So it'll be a very fun and interesting uh, decade for sure. We're just, we're really just getting started. And I mean, President Bukele keeps teasing that there's a big announcement and we're, we're frankly just running under assumptions here, but mine is that it will be another nation state. To your point, I don't necessarily think it will be like one of the global players, one of the large nations, but I want, I want to make sure I clarify this for myself. Your, your priority as far as the nation state adoption goes is not make it legal tender, is not make it, oh, you like Brazil, you can pay taxes for 10% off, 10% off, use code YTMAC for conference tickets, but it's rather keep it in your reserves. I know so many countries just hold dollars in their reserve, print their own currency on top, but now you're essentially your reserve pool is getting inflated. And then you're also inflating your own currency. So other countries deal it doubly so. So is that sort of where you really want that, that's how, so I want, well, first of all, to be clear, I would love to see both things happen, right? I want it to be legal tender so that like El Salvador, so you can own it legally, not get taxed on it. And you think of it as just, this is just currency. It's just like the US dollar. It's just as, you know, uh, useful. But in order for it to become the world's reserve asset, um, I think that, yeah, I want to see nation states start to actually put it on their balance sheet and not and not do it sort of embarrassingly, but do it like boldly. Like we hold this, look at how sound our currency is now because we hold Bitcoin on our balance sheet. So that day is coming. I hope it comes sooner than later. I hope it's the U.S. that leads the way, although I'm not sure it will be. But who knows? The future is hard to predict and it's uh, it's really hard to predict accurately. Yeah, I mean, you are, you are absolutely right. I mean, look, anyone watching, if you've got that crystal ball, come meet <laughs> Jeff and I in Vegas yeah, right. this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, send me an email if you know. That would be good. Uh, Jeff, where can our viewers find you, follow you, learn more about you? 
Sure. So if you want to learn more about Valeshire and the fund, my, um, the website is just valeshire.com, V-A-I-L-S-H-I-R-E.com. You can uh, email me directly if you want at info at valeshire.com. Uh, if you want to talk about like, you know, uh, portfolio management kind of things and, and how I incorporate Bitcoin into it. And then I'm on Twitter all the time. So my handle on Twitter is at valeshirecap. Um, find me on there. And I'm always, you know, blathering about something, usually about Bitcoin. Awesome. Well, Dr. Ross, thank you so much for joining us, man. Please feel free to come back anytime. And in the meantime, we are super excited to see you speak at Bitcoin 22. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to chat even more then. Um, so if any of you guys want, make sure you get a ticket, make sure you come out to see Dr. Jeff Ross. If you learn anything here, just wait until you hear an actual prepared speech from the man. <laughs> yeah, I, I second that. Yep. Get your tickets now. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be an incredible conference this year, I think. So come and, come and see all of us. It'll be a lot of fun. Awesome, guys. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and then we'll come back and you'll see my pretty face for a little bit longer. Yeah. <laughs>